Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, special counsel Robert Mueller will testify before the House on July 17th. How does that change the story? China has decided to ban meat exports from Canada. How long is this going to go on? And we saw all those great shots of the Toronto Raptors victory parade, some by a drone. Only problem is, most of them were illegal. And it's a security issue. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Robert Mueller, who, of course, we all remember the Mueller report and the investigation, and and it went on seemingly forever. And then he... uh, uh, the Attorney General released a, a very small, I guess, four-page version of a 400-page report. Uh, and, and then eventually Mueller came out and, and made a statement saying, that was it. Uh, this is all I got to say. And if I come back to testify, I'll basically say the same thing. And now we find out that Ro- Robert Mueller is to testify uh, publicly before a House committees on July 17th. To talk more about this, Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington producer. Uh, correspondent with Global News. He is down there now and with us. Reggie, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So what can we learn from this? Uh, we remember when uh, Mueller gave his uh, his, last pre- his last press conference on all of this, he basically said he had no reason to testify and anything he'd already, he would have said, he would have already said. What are your thoughts? Where's this going? Well, I think that this is an important move for the Democrats to be able to claim some kind of victory in this kind of ongoing pursuit to weaken Donald Trump's chances as we head in towards the 2020 election, because Robert Mueller was very quiet over his two years. He gave that one news conference to basically say, look, I'm done with my job. The office is closing. The report is out there. And these are my words. But he's also a man of the law. He's been in this position for decades. So when issued a subpoena, he's going to comply with the subpoena. And that is a win for Democrats because they've been stonewalled by the administration for weeks now on trying to get somebody to come and testify, but it's going to give Democrats an opportunity to ask questions of Robert Mueller, basically along those lines of where he laid out 10 different instances where the president may have obstructed justice, and they may be able to get a little bit more out of him uh, on each one of those uh, each one of those uh, cases that he laid out, and then use that to pad their own investigations that they're doing into the president. So it is a big win for the Democrats. How far will Mueller go in being led to their answers? Um, uh, he's already said this is the report. This is um, uh, what I saw and what I have to say. Uh, them asking questions, will that expose a different angle or allow him to peel back the onion a bit more? Well, I mean, it could be any one of those things. I don't think Robert Mueller is going to be or has really hi- anything hiding kind of up his sleeve and he's going to present anything new. But anytime you say something more than once in a different way, it can be interpreted a different way. And Democrats can use that as they kind of push forward to go after Trump. Uh, I think that Robert Mueller is is playing the cards correctly right now. He's the only one who has all of this information. He can kind of clarify things that have been misrepresented by the administration or by the president. He can clarify the comments that were made by the attorney general general when he said that the uh, letter that was written to him by uh, by Mueller that he kind of had misrepresented the way that he was writing and talking and then William Barr basically said that that letter was snitty and was probably written by a staff member. These are the things that can be asked by Democrats to clear up that public misperception that the administration is putting out about Robert Mueller. Uh, considering what you just said and 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 the people asking questions can can press for clarification uh, can this can this or will this chest uh, do you think this testimony can change 
the tone can change the direction of all of this, or will it be like it seems to always be in all of these debates? If you're with them, you're with them. If you're not, you're not. Uh, but, but, but could this in some way be a game changer? Well, it could be a game changer, especially for the Democrats and for people who have really been trying to push to get more information, because the the main line Democrats have been saying for months now is that uh, Robert Mueller was working to get this information on the president, to get information on Russian uh, interference into the election. And the American people have a right to hear from Robert Mueller outside of just reading 448 pages worth of words. So, uh, you know, I think that that's one thing that we can do going forward. Republicans are basically going to look at this and say, look, Robert Mueller said all he has to say. The president is claiming this as presidential harassment right now. Uh, The story is over. We all know what the ending is. Democrats are going to say, look, there's people out there that don't know what the ending is. We have things like Fox News, who's kind of skewed the writings of Robert Mueller to make their own narratives uh, kind of fit into that report. So Democrats, again, are hoping that this can kind of clear up some of the air and let people kind of get a better idea as to what Robert Mueller was investigating over those two years. So how will Donald Trump and the White House respond to this testimony? Well, we know that they're not going to get in the way of it. They've been kind of using executive privilege to uh, get to uh, to stop a number of people from testifying before Congress over the last couple of weeks. We know that they've said, okay, he can go and talk. We know that William Barr, the attorney general, has said that he won't stop Robert Mueller from being able to testify. What we can expect likely from the White House is sometime on uh, July 16th or on the day of the testimony, July 17th, to try and change the, the, uh, the channel, try to do something else. We may hear the president say something we may hear him kind of make some kind of new policy announcement to kind of take the uh, take the spotlight off of Robert Mueller. But for the most part, the White House has said he can testify, he can talk, nobody's getting in his way, despite the fact the president today going on Fox News and trying to drum up a whole bunch of lies about Robert Mueller. Could this make uh, Attorney General Barr look bad? Well, I don't think that it's going to make him look bad in the eyes of the administration because the president already has, uh, you know, given a a good pat on the back to William Barr saying, look, he's doing a great job as the attorney general, as 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 everything that he said right now has kind of benefited the president as he's been sitting in the Oval Office. So I don't think it's going to do anything to tarnish the reputation of William Barr, at least in the eyes of the administration or staunch Republicans. Democrats have already called out William Barr since the day he was in there. So, again, you're right on your comment where people whose minds up or minds are already made aren't going to change them. It's that potential waffly middle that could get a new perception on things. Well, many thought, Reggie, when the report came out, oh my goodness, this is it. You know, it's going to hit the fan and then nothing really happened. So can we expect the same here? Well, a little bit of it did hit the fan because we did kind of get an idea as to what uh, Robert Mueller was looking at over the last two years. But we also have to remember that most people have focused on this this uh, opportunity to go after the president when it comes to obstruction. But this report also laid out a significant uh, uh, line of detail that says that, yes, Russia did interfere with the election in 2016. And I think that Democrats are also going to hone in on that because we're heading into another election in 2020. And for the most part, that kind of uh, discussion about any kind of foreign influence getting involved in the electoral process has not really been center stage over the last couple of weeks. So it's an opportunity to kind of drum up the conversation to say, look, the president needs to get his act in gear. He needs to ensure that foreign entity, uh, foreign adversaries aren't getting in the way of the election process next year. So the obstruction thing is one thing, but that Russian interference is also a big deal that I think they're going to talk about. All right, uh, everybody heading to the G20, what do you think will be, uh, uh, well, what do you think is going to hijack the agenda? Any idea what direction it can go, especially with what has happened in Iran and allies concerned about the ramping up of rhetoric? 
I think that there is a strong possibility that the president could have some kind of off-to-the-side conversations with world leaders about the situation in the Middle East. There have been uh, a number of allies that have had a little bit of skepticism about how the U.S. has been controlling the situation and the rhetoric that's been coming out of the White House and out of leadership in Iran, especially now that new sanctions are in place. So I think that's a big thing that people are going to talk about. But as you had mentioned right before we started talking, this China issue with uh, the prime minister not having a conversation with Beijing, the president has already said that if the prime minister had asked him to have that conversation with Xi Jinping about what's happening with the Huawei situation and the detainees, that he would do that. So there is that possibility that it might not make big headlines around the world, but it could be a push for Canada in the right direction of getting the situation fixed. Uh, Getting back to that, we know that uh, the prime minister and the president met in Washington earlier on in the week to discuss various things, including NAFTA and this issue with uh, China. Uh, It almost seemed as if uh, the president was uh, surprised that that the prime minister would ask for his help on this, although we're not really sure how it was all presented. Uh, How how significant will this be? Is this a, a, a big deal to Trump or uh, or, or does it play in the United States? Is this something that's going to be blown off in a conversation? How much attention do you think he will give to Canada's role in the China thing, whether it's the Huawei CFO, the detainees, what have you? I think that the president's going to need to be kind of pushed into that conversation. I can't imagine that it's the number one thing that he's going uh, over there to talk about, especially when he sits down with the pre- uh, with the president of China, especially with this big trade war that's going on between the two countries. I think he'll have to be goaded into that conversation. But I also don't know how much he's going to be able to change the situation. Because, look, Washington is the one who created the situation when it comes to this extradition order. So they're the ones who are kind of front and center about it right now. Canada's been caught in the crosshairs of this. And if Beijing and Ottawa aren't going to have a conversation, it really is going to be difficult for Washington to kind of sway the pendulum over the uh, over towards Ottawa and say, well, look, help them for us when we're not helping any kind of situation when it comes to tariffs. Will this be part of the trade talks? I mean, it, could, it, could it weasel its way in there? It's very possible. I mean, there's there's a lot of money on the table. There's a lot of jobs on the table. There's a lot of kind of uh, economic turmoil on the table when it comes to tariffs. And it doesn't just affect uh, the U.S. It affects Mexico. It affects Canada. And it affects a number of global trading partners. So this is something that could kind of get pushed into a broader conversation about the issues that have come up since this trade war started, whether or not it gets resolved uh, by any kind of conversation over a course of a 48-hour meeting uh, with the G20 leaders is, is still to be seen. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on. Tonight, the Democratic uh, Democrat or the Democratic candidates are holding a debate. As a matter of fact, there's so many of them, there's going to be a couple because it'd be pretty tough, I guess, to get them all on the same stage at the same time. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Aaron Call is with us, director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor, co-author of Debating the Donald, and is with us now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Great to be back. So what is the format here? How is this going to shake down with so many candidates? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very unique, kind of unprecedented format. Um, Ten candidates per night. Right. And they say there are five moderators of the debate, and there's going to be four commercial breaks and about five segments. So, you know, the, the candidates are really going to have to fight tooth and nail in order to, to be heard and be a part of the debate, especially for those who are kind of at the lower tier. Of the, uh, the is, moderators generally graduate uh, towards the, the frontrunners. 
Is this fair? Is there any other way to do this, considering the amount, you know, the, the the number of candidates that you have? I mean, how do you get ahead? In it's it's almost like a, a round robin debate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no, you know, it's it's probably the best option they could have come up with, but there were, weren't great choices. If you remember last time, there was a lot of consternation between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. People felt there weren't enough debates. They were kind of rigged towards Hillary Clinton. They occurred on weekends and holidays, and nobody watched them. So every time they said, all right, we're going to do 12 debates, and we're going to you know, allow 20 people to participate, and we're going to try to even the, the two nights and make it random to make it more fair and transparent, and you know, there's still criticism of it. So you know, if, you know, three candidates got left out, and you know, some candidates will get much more speaking time. So it's, it's an imperfect situation. I think they made the best uh, choices they could do, but, but no system is going to be perfect. And no matter what they do, there's still going to be a lot of complaints about the process. How do Democrats pick a leader and not eat each other on the way through all of this, uh, <laughs> giving the Republicans uh, more meat for the other campaign? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. And I think that's kind of that kind of happened a little bit last year. There was a a real tough campaign, and, and Bernie Sanders did better than a lot of people expected. And there were some real wounds, both with the candidate himself and his supporters. And I think a lot of his supporters ended up support, voting for Donald Trump in the end. And so that's the real worry this year, that you know, even through a process, a tough process, people become so jaded and there's so much discord that some of the voters of the, the opponent, the, the candidates don't win, just simply don't vote, they'll turn out. And then you know, President Trump gets another uh, another term. And so I think that these debates will be more respectful than the Republican ones in, in 2015 and 16. They'll be more based on policy, and, and hopefully the candidates can, you know, disagree w- without making it personal. And, and so, no matter what happens, the party will be unified at the conclusion of the 12 debates. But certainly, the goal of the, the Democratic Party, which is sponsoring them, is will this be more about picking a leader or picking the new direction for the for the party? Which I guess is is one and the same. Uh, I guess my point here is how divided is this party in in, in ideology? Is there unity here? Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, but you know, right now, no candidates getting more polling more than kind of the 20, 30 percent. So there's a lot of undecided voters, a lot of voters that really haven't tuned in yet and haven't made a final decision. But on substance, I think there's a lot more agreement uh, than disagreement amongst the candidates. And so, you know, they have different education, healthcare, immigration plans. I think in general, they're kind of in the same direction and has the same vision. But there may be some small distinctions, nuance, kind of know how expensive they are how far they should go and they're definitely disagreement there but i think everyone agrees no matter what in the, in the democratic party that um any candidate would be preferable to uh to donald trump and a lot of uh voters are really pragmatic saying you know which vote which candidate's gonna do the best against president trump in state polls national polls and i think on the debate stage we'll see a lot of the candidates making the case for why they're best uniquely situated to defeat president trump asked him on a debate stage, and so I think the public will be looking at it with that frame in mind. Um, is this Joe Biden's contest to lose? It is. It is. He's the, the front runner, which is a unique position for him. He's run for president several other times and, and kind of paired poorly, uh, fared poorly, but this is the first time he is the, the unquestioned front runner. Even the latest polls just came out, despite some of his kind of gaps and controversy, still have him up about 10, 20 points nationally. He's leading in a lot of the key states, like Iowa, South Carolina, some of the first states that vote. And so, so yeah, he's the front runner. I think he's mainly going to focus on President Trump because he wants to show that he's the candidate that uh, Trump most fears and that he could, you know, best uh, defeat him on a, a debate stage and, and have the best chance of winning, according to state and national polls. And I think the other ones, 
the other candidates are really going to attack him or be pretty aggressive because obviously they can't get the nomination without going through um, you know, Vice President Biden. But a lot of people think he's a weak front runner that, you know, he just because he has the highest name ID, he was a sitting vice president, the mm-hmm. kind of that's where people are gra- gravitating toward now. But, you know, after 12 debates or however many, you know, certainly opinions could change. And he has a lot of vulnerabilities that you could see on the, on the stage. Uh, is Bernie his biggest challenger? Not anymore. I think that that was the way it started. It was kind of a two-person race between Bernie and, and Joe Biden. And they actually obviously have a lot of differences and, and different kind of ideological wings of the party. But recently, uh, Elizabeth Warren, I think, has kind of surged into second place. She has a lot of policy proposals that are really in-depth, and she's really come on and I think kind of eclipsed Bernie. And the two of them are kind of even fighting for a lot of the same voters. And so it's, it's too bad that they're both won't be on the same stage. Um, but right now, I would say... People like Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, um, Kamala Harris, you know, those are, along with Bernie, are kind of the, the second tier. But, but Bernie's faded a lot since last time. He was really the only alternative to Hillary Clinton this time. It's a much bigger field, and, and he's older as well. And so he hasn't really had the rollout that he wanted, and I imagine he'll be looking to make up a lot of ground in, in the debate. Uh, is Bernie resonating with the party? Is he too far left for the party? Is he farther farther left than the party wants to go, or what they feel they need to be tr- to beat Trump? Yeah, that's certainly a weakness. I mean, he. I think people think about you know if Bernie is the nominee, then you're going to see uh, President Trump. Republicans talk a lot about socialism and you know how Bernie Sanders presidency would hurt the economy. There'd be a lot of regulations, a lot of spending, and, and high taxes, and so. You know, both gen- the general public, kind of independent, moderate voters, he may be too far to the left of. And then just with the Democratic Party itself, there definitely is a base, especially younger voters that are very liberal and you know, support Bernie and other candidates. But there's a good portion of the Democratic Party that is older and more moderate. And that's where Vice President Biden's getting a lot of his support for uh, African-Americans. And so the party's kind of split there. There's, you know, kind of the older generation and then this new kind of you know, students and younger adults, and so there really is a divide there, and it'll be interesting to see how it's both reflected in the debate, but then also who, how it impacts who the eventual nominee is. Aaron Call has been with us, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan and co-author of Debating the Donald. Aaron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. All right, let's talk about robotics. And we've talked about this many times, uh, uh, over, usually around discussions about jobs going to, to cheaper climbs mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. And, and you've said many times over and over that it's automation is really responsible for the loss of the, a lot of these jobs, as well as uh, cheaper climbs and such. Uh, predicted to take, uh, robots predicted to take over 20 million manufacturing jobs by 2030. But you wanted to touch on how this all started. Well, you know, just to put this in context, 100 years ago, at the end of the First World War, half of all people in Canada worked in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Today, it's less than 5%. What happened? Well, primarily, it was some form of mechanization. My great-grandfather was a farmer, and, of course, it was a team of horses and a mm-hmm. plow, and a good day was when they could clear two acres. Yeah. Now we've got big honking tractors, big honking combines and threshing machines, and what one person or two people can do used to be what 500 people could do. At the end of the Second World War, half of all people who in Canada worked in manufacturing. Today it's less than 20%, running around 18%. 
what happened? Again, mechanization, if you want to use the word robotics, we found ways to do this. And it's not necessarily the end of the world. If you visit the Toyota factory in Cambridge, you'll see that they're using robots many times to do jobs that were quite dangerous for people to do. You had to climb into a car as it was being assembled to weld some spot. And if you didn't get it right, something could slam down on you and injure you. So we've taken that out of the equation. Today, half of all people who work, work in a service sector. Whether that is uh, at a bank or what we're doing today on the radio, that's a service that is provided. And we've already begun to see signs of automation or mechanization or, if you want, artificial intelligence going mm-hmm. on, an automatic teller machine, an yeah. ATM. God bless, you know, those were supposed to revolutionize everything. And then we created the Internet. Hardly anybody. I still go to ATMs. You yeah, maybe yeah, do, yeah, too. Yeah. But my students, what's an ATM? Yeah. I don't go to those things. Exactly. I, I avoid the bank altogether. I it was just the online. first step in modernization. Yeah, it was just and that already. Now, there, feel sorry. Obsolete. There'll be 100 million <laughs> ATMs going to be out of business over That's the next right. 10 years. So, look, th- this is just a natural progression of things that happens. And, and Scott, uh, just another bit of context for you. There are 7.5 billion people on this planet, roughly 5.5 billion who are of working age. Oxford University, who did this study, said that there'll be 20 million jobs lost over the next decade. Honestly, my first reaction was, is that all? Hmm. Because with 5.5 billion people working, we're talking about less than 1% of that workforce, and uh, it's going to have bigger impacts. Now, what does that mean? Uh, It does mean jobs shift. So uh, you now need to repair because, those robots. Well, here's, here's, and there's a key point, because you talk about job shifting, because immediately when, when we see headlines that say 20 million manufacturers, jobs gone by, by 2030, mass unemployment. Are we going to see mass unemployment with the mass exodus of manufacturing jobs, or is there enough in new technology to absorb yeah. this. Well, all I can base this is on past performance. We've never seen this mass wave. Yeah. Now, we did have terrible unemployment in the 1920s, but that was caused by, or really the 1930s, that was caused by the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl conditions. Barring something like that, yeah. we seem to be able to do this and uh, evolve people from one kind of a job to another. And I think there will be other kinds of jobs. But the other thing that's also happened is what is a working week? A hundred years ago, my grandfather would have told you he worked 12-hour days, at least six days a week, and it, now I'm paid to work 35 hours a week. 35, and they pay you for that? Um, already we have some significant companies talking about 32-hour work weeks, 30-hour work weeks. The odd one is even talking about something like 28-hour work yeah, weeks. Yeah, but Marvin, I remember back in the 80s reading stats, um, again, as soon as this all started, saying that, you know, we'd only be working four-hour weeks, we'd only have this, we'd only we, this is easier, that's easier. And instead of the actual individual's role or job becoming less, they were just piled on with more. So they were just piled on with more responsibilities. So where there were three employees, now there's just one, but the other guy's doing the other two jobs. Well, we don't. So we don't have that. Right. To be candid, that you know, leisure, when, the way when you thought. look in a crystal ball, it's a, a cloudy future. We don't know exactly what's going to happen or how fast it's going to happen. But I'm not, I'm not panicking here. I'll, but the nature of work constantly evolves and changes. And, and again, if my grandfather were alive today to find out that I'm paid a good salary to talk, that's my job is to talk and communicate and inform people. And he said, they pay you to do that? <laughs> you know, he couldn't yeah. believe that because where, where's, the, where's the fruits of your labor? Where's the stuff you've made? Well, today people pay you to do things that aren't that way. So it does evolve. I'm not panicky about it, but I would say to anyone out there listening to us, 
You've got to have it in your head that the job you have today is not likely going to carry you to retirement. That was my next question. Do students that you're teaching now realize, because it's tough, because my daughter's 17 right now trying to pick her future, what she's going to do, the direction she's going to go in, which is really difficult now because so many people change occupations two, three, four, five times through their career. Are students aware of that? How do we teach kids to be more nimble? Yeah. So we tell them this now, again, how much they retain it. But what we tell students today is that their working career is going to consist of five to seven segments, each running five to seven years, Hmm. and that you will uh, do things. I'll just give you a quick example. Most people listening to us don't know this. You probably don't know this, but from 1997 to 2002, I was the chief information officer of the university. Mm -hmm. I was in charge of computing, printing, telecommunications, things like that. When I got my MBA in 1984, the job I did in 1997 didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And yet there I am doing it yeah. and, and you know, doing other things after that. And so, you know, the wise person, I'll give you another quick example. My father was a laborer. He was a shift supervisor at a factory. I will never forget in the early 1970s that my father signed up for a college course uh, at night school mm-hmm. on the metric system. Wow. It was coming in. He thought yeah. it was going to come in. We didn't quite know how it was going to come in, yeah. but he said, if it comes in, I'd better know about it. So he took this little course, and today it would seem quite silly to, to learn about kilograms sure. and kilometers, what have you. But when his factory had to adopt Do the crossover, change guess over. who led the transition team? Yeah. Yeah. And they said, well, thank God that you'd taken that, Carm. You're going to be in charge of this. So my father saw something, and he didn't sit back. As opposed to people who, yeah. you know, well, those kids, those kids with their computers and those tablets, it's fine for them, but I'm not going to bother. You are dooming yourself to obsolescence. And, you know, in, in a city like this where manufacturing has been so prevalent for so many years uh, in so many situations where the father worked there, the son worked there, the grandfather worked there, those days are gone. To some extent, yeah. although the other thing I would tell you is if you talk to FASCO, there are still three, three generations of people there, but mm-hmm. the job the grandson is doing. Right. At a steel company is significantly different. DeFasco and Stelco, I can't say this loudly enough, are high technology companies. They make steel, and some of the basic concepts of making steel haven't changed, but that process is not the great grandfather's process at all. There's an awful lot of high technology in there. And that's, by the way, how they do it. In 1960, there were 35,000 people making steel in Hamilton. Today, that number is, you know, depending on how you want to count it, on the order of 5,000 or so. But they're putting out more steel than they ever have before. Mm. How do they do that? It's through the use of technology. Uh, When we hear of robotics and manufacturing, we think of of plants, auto plants, that sort of thing. What about other industries that are going to be affected by automation? Yeah, so it's easy to do. If you see something that's fairly repetitive, even if a person does it, then that's something that can be automated. Artificial mm-hmm. intelligence just says, let's embed those rules and have somebody else do it. So processing, depositing a check or what have you. So banking. Checking groceries. Right. Uh, to, yes, to some extent, for sure. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, Scott, I shared with you off air that today I, I woke up to find my air conditioning wasn't working. Yeah. And I had a nice team of people who came out and looked at it and they're working to fix the coil. I don't see how you can have a robot do that. You needed yeah, yeah, somebody yeah. with a different set of skills. So to something that is routinized, yeah. that, that can be automated, is going to be looked at. Because companies, whether you like it or not, it's the basis of our system. They're looking for ways to keep the profits going. Shareholders demand it. And they say, maybe we can have another way of doing it. Our industry, the teaching industry, we've talked about this a lot. How is it going to impact as we've gone through the revolutions of the book mm-hmm. and then of, mm. of <laughs> radio and then of television and video and the Internet? And every time people have said, you know, you're going to be replaced 
and somehow we find ways to continue to add value to keep our jobs. But maybe one day it can be routinized. Um, to something like what? Online teaching? Don't know. Yeah. All I'm saying is that you the, the world is such that when we create technology, it can do things that you never thought it was going to do. I call it the law of unintended consequences. You know, a great example is if I went to the bank and deposited a check and the teller, it was a $200 check, but the teller only gave me credit for $20. Hey, you, you've mm-hmm. made a mistake. I'm going to hold you accountable. But if I take the check and I'm supposed to deposit and yeah. I type 20 rather than 200, <laughs> who do you want to blame? And there's a lot of people who, who say, I want the joy of self-processing, but I don't want the responsibility for the mistakes. I still want to be able to blame somebody else. You know, these are the unintended consequences of technology. How much impact will this have at once? Have we seen the majority of the impact from uh, the internet, from from technology, or is there are there still big gaps to to clear. I, I don't know if I want to call it big gaps, but there are lovely people working primarily in Northern California. Uh, I actually joke that these are very technologically advanced people trying to push the technology farther, and they're coming up with things all the time. That's that's the hotbed. So yeah. I never saw Uber coming. I didn't see Airbnb coming. Uh, I, I didn't think of the model that way because I thought it was just too complicated legally. And by the way, it may be, and they may eventually lose out in their battles, but there are people out there who are challenging. We call it disruptive technologies. The laws follow the technology. Well, sometimes. So there's more disruption coming. Again, a message I'd have to people, if you are sitting there saying to people, oh, it's got to slow down, it's too much, it's too fast, it's never going to slow down, you got to get used to this constant pace of change. So uh, how do you prepare kids, young people, for news like this? Do you, uh, do you look for a job that will not be overtaken by robotics? Do you, do you go in it with that attitude or just the attitude that I've got to be nimble, I've got to be mm-hmm. broad in, in what I'm the key. The key difference studying. is once upon a time, if you go back to my father's day, uh, he would go to work for a company and saw the company as a benevolent Uh, almost father, if you will. You'll take care of me for Mm -hmm. life. I'll have a job for life. And what we have to tell students, and we have to remind them over and over again, you are now responsible for your own career path. This company you're working for is is great, and you want to give them a certain amount of loyalty, but ultimately the person who's responsible for your career is you. You've got to stay current. You've got to look for the opportunities. You've got to retrain yourself and take those leaps periodically. Don't wait for the mother company. I know I'm not a good example of this because I've worked for McMaster for 35 years, but that will be the real exception in the future, this idea of five to seven segments, five to seven years. You've got to be in charge. Uh, Will the public just go along with this because it's easier, it's cheaper, it makes life more convenient, or will we see backlash like we are in some grocery stores or or shoppers' drug marts where they've actually taken the automatic automatic tellers out because people have complained? Is it just a matter of time before? Well, I, I see. I view all of that as experiments. I think as you try to deploy technology, you have to experiment with it. Here's something you probably don't know. Canada Post actually experimented uh, with some bank machines to issue postage stamps through them. Mm-hmm. The experiment bombed. It did terribly, and so it was all taken away. But by the way, if you happen to have one of those postage stamps, they're worth a small fortune because mm. very few of them ever got issued. So we have to experiment with it. And sometimes it catches fire and it changes things, and other times it doesn't. And that's the kind of thing you're going to see. So um, 
don't don't think anything status quo. Everything is being experimented with, but every now and again something will, and it will revolutionize the way say CDs did with vinyl. Right. Yeah, Even yeah. though vinyl is still around, no one thought about it. now it's streaming services. But is that the end of the road? No. Somebody will have another method. I uh, can't let you go without asking you about West Cam and the yep. announcements uh, recently uh, expanding their headquarters in Hamilton yep. and, and what that does for the area and, and how difficult is it to keep businesses like that here? So I don't, I don't mean to be a, a Debbie Downer about all this. It's, it's not bad news. It's just not s- a real stunning news because all we're doing is moving a company from Burlington back to Hamilton. Yeah. And when we think of the economy in Hamilton... There I, is some expanction there, I can't, or not. Some, yeah. yes. But I can't really think of Hamilton separate from Burlington. No, no. joined at the hip. So regionally, it's not going to change yeah. anything other than the expansion plans, which will kick in over the next five or six years. That's great news. The one bit of truth, though, is the property taxes. Mm-hmm. They're going to build a big building. There are some development charges and roughly $2 million of property tax assessment that's going to come to the city of Hamilton. It's a billion-dollar budget the city has. We need five or ten of those, but, hey, that's one. Let's keep the momentum going. And if you add that to what Stryker is doing, even CHCH is talking about building something new. You know, these things, you put them together, there's some momentum. That's the exciting part. But on its own, it isn't that big of a deal, much more if it had, say, come from Texas or came from Alabama. Exactly. But bad news for Burlington because they lose the tax base? Well, they, the, right now they're leasing space in Burlington, so the building they're leasing would still be charged right. taxes. Right. It'll be up to the auto owner to try to fill it. So I, I, I think even the jobs, people who work in Burlington are just going to commute to Clapperson's Corners. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for coming by. Glad and, to hear. And, I, you know, I'm thinking it's just to see me, but really it's just because we have AC. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Marvin. Take care. We'll do you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We remember watching the uh, Toronto Raptors victory parade, uh, which was uh, it just seemed to go on forever and ever and ever, simply because there were so many people. I remember uh, that day that the parade was supposed to start around 10 o'clock or so. And, of course, our show runs from noon till 3. Uh, by 12.30, they were supposed to be on stage giving speeches. We thought, well, that'll be kind of cool. We'll go in and we'll be able to, uh, you know, to drop in some segments of the uh, of the festivities, give you a taste of what's going on, and kind of, you know, pepper it through the show as it was going on uh, all day. So the parade started at 10 o'clock, and we're sort of making, you know, trying to schedule the show around this. And uh, this is the same as when the uh, Prime Minister came to speak at uh, Stilco, I think it was, or DeFasco. Uh, and again, we, you know, it was supposed to start at this time, and then you're all waiting for it, and it's two hours later. Anyway, um... So by the time the show came on the air at 12 o'clock, they hadn't even got to Nathan Phillips Square yet. And uh, the parade route was so cramped with people uh, that the the artery, the roadway they were going through just kept closing in. And somehow these guys with these buses had to maneuver them through these uh, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, Anyway, long story short, by the time they got to... Nathan Phillips Square, uh, it was 3.30, so the show was over, so we got nothing from that. And um, it took them literally that long to go from Exhibition Stadium to Nathan Phillips Square, just due to the throngs of people. And you no doubt saw a lot of aerial footage showing the size of the crowds, and and, and you could see that Nathan Phillips Square was absolutely jammed, and then all the uh, streets around it leading up to Nathan Phillips Square were jammed. It, it, It was just incredible to see. And whether you noticed it or not, what you may have viewed, what you may have seen, are shots from a drone on social media. 
According to a, a drone pilot instructor, the drone videos from the Raptors parade and rally were illegal flights. And recently released rules and regulations that have, have come into play, uh, this just flies in the face of all of that. Uh, so is this a violation of simple rules? How big of a security issue is this? Uh, considering drones can be used for multiple purposes, perhaps. Uh, the prime minister was in attendance at the um, at the festivities. Let's bring in Darren Clark, uh, Clarion Drone Academy, and he is with us now. Darren, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Glad to be here. What is Clarion Drone Academy? Oh, we're an academy out of Kitchener, Ontario, and we teach uh, people how to uh, fly drones and get legal and how to fly and teach them the, uh, the rules and regulations for the the new drone rules. We've been around for about five years or so, and we've trained hundreds of pilots across the country on how to fly these, how to run a good business, and how to fly safely. So I'm guessing there's the recreational pilot, then there's industry, because there's all sorts of industries that are taking advantage of this technology as well. But say you are just a weekend warrior and you want to buy something and play around with, what are the rules? What can you do? What can't you do? Anything under 250 grams is not regulated. So you can you know, basically a drone that fits in the size of your hand is pretty much okay. Go in your backyard and there you go. Anything over 250 grams to 25 kilograms, you're, if you're going to, what they've done, and you mentioned this earlier, Scott, is, is either you're going to fly, fly in uncontrolled air, uh, airspace or controlled airspace. Uh, for the weekend warrior, they got to kind of know what kind of airspace they're in. What you have to do if you're going to buy a drone over 250 grams, you now have to take a Transport Canada exam. If you're going to fly in uncontrolled airspace, you need a basic exam. And then, and you also need to register the drone as well. And I think that's around five bucks or so. And then you register the drone, you get a number, it's got to be uh, displayed on the drone, and you have to be pilot certified. So, uncontrolled airspace, you need a basic pilot certification. So, you need to take the exam. And I can tell you now, Scott, the exams are pretty robust. If you don't have any kind of aviation background or any knowledge, of airspace or what have you, you're going to have a hard time with it. So like getting your driver's license, you have to read up on all of this and know what all these rules and regulations are. Would it be just as difficult for someone who's, say, for example, getting a driver's license? Yeah, I would say so. You do have to read up on uh, what's called the Gazette. Look on the Transport Canada website. You can take a ground school. There's lots of ground schools across the country just like us that, that can sign up and do it online. And then, then when you're confident enough, take the test. Um, you did mention earlier about recreational and commercial. As of June 1st, or midnight June 1st that just passed, um, recreational and commercial have been thrown out. So in other words, if you just want to fly in uncontrolled airspace, you can just get a basic, register your drone, pass the exam. You can actually start a business. Go figure that one. And uh, anywhere from 250 grams up to a 25-kilo uh, type drone. If you're going to go into controlled airspace, that's a whole different ball game where you, again, have to register your drone, take the Advanced Transport Canada exam online, and pass it. If you think the basic was hard, the advanced is just as tough. How and do you, you, have to, and you have to pass it. What's the difference between uh, uh, restricted, non-restricted? How do you know one from the other? Well, if you're really, let's put it this way. Uh, for example, you're in Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton mostly is in Class D or Class Delta. It's, you know, anywhere in between Let's put it this way, uh, less than five kilometers uh, nautical, or pardon me, five nautical miles of an aerodrome, you're pretty much in controlled airspace. This is not also counting the helipads around the hospitals, 
where you have to stay about one nautical mile away from there. This is where the education comes in about the aviation. For the layman on the street or the weekend warriors that want to go out and fly this, this is where they need to know about the Canadian aviation rules and regulations when it comes to drones, but just aviation in general to know what airspace you're in. And again, the layman on the street won't know that. What are some of the basic mistakes that drone operators make? Most of them, uh, let's put it this way, flying where they're not supposed to be flying. Uh, they'd be flying over roadways or, in fact... Um, where can't they fly? You can't fly uh, within five nautical miles of an aerodrome or in controlled airspace with a basic pilot certification. You can't be in controlled airspace. If you have an advanced pilot certification, you can go into controlled airspace. As long as you need, you need to keep pilot logs and you also have to keep maintenance logs on your machines and then document all your flights. Uh, a lot of people don't keep a lot of good paperwork. In other words, a long time ago, uh, the Minister Mark Arnault has deemed these UAVs or drones or, or remotely piloted aircraft systems or RPASs, uh, what they're called now, um, deem these as an aircraft. So we have to be just as good as an Air Canada pilot when you think of it. Hmm. What, uh, getting back to the situation with the Raptors' victory parade, uh, we all saw lots of aerial footage. Uh, were there a lot of drones flying around? Were there one or two? What, what, what was the scenario that, and is that, what is that uh, airspace considered? That airspace there, you can look at Toronto on an aviation air map, and pretty much all of Toronto is pretty much in Class C or controlled airspace. So if you don't have permission to go in there from Nav Canada, which is a company that handles all the flight uh, flight planning and clearances to go into those areas. Um, there were from I spoke to a few um, Nav Canada contacts, and one said that they only approved one UAV flight. There were three of them that flew. The one is that infamous one on Game Six, and one during the parade, which broke all kinds of rules. And the other one uh, you will see, and I don't know who the operator was, but they told me the operator had the I's dotted, T's crossed, got the proper clearance, knew exactly what they were doing, had all the paperwork, that they could fly it. They stayed a good 200 feet or so or even 100 feet away from the actual event, and the pictures looked great. I don't know who the operator was, but for the other gentleman that went on uh, Instagram and all this kind of stuff, which is the bone of contention and raised the eyebrows of pretty much everyone across the country, uh, that one was done... And that, when you look at that, you can tell that was a blatant disregard to our current drone laws that came into effect uh, midnight June 1st. So would anybody in the crowd there notice these things flying around? Oh, I would imagine they did. Mm -hmm. um, from what I heard during the parade, uh, the gentleman actually, I don't know if they lost control or probably did and slammed it into the side of a building and then kind of fell down. And uh -huh. I guess when he went to try and retrieve it, uh, the boys and girls in blue or Metro Toronto police were there. And I guess they had a chat with them from what I heard hmm. and, uh, just gave, you know, read them the riot act and just kind of sent them on his way. So there was probably four there. One was registered legally to do this. Yes, there was one from what I know. And again, I don't know who the operator was. Right. I guess NAVCAN is not a, I'm not a privy to that info. So, uh, but I, I do know there was one that was okay to do the event. But apparently there were three going around, and uh, they were not authorized to go into that controlled airspace. Now, this would be like committing a crime and putting it on the Internet, would it not? Uh, I guess you can say it's a federal, it's an aviation crime, or it's against the rules and regulations that came in June 1st. So um, a lot, the aircraft that was used there was a Mavic 2 Pro. Now, there's certain um, aircrafts that are starting to come out that would be allowed to go over people and what have you. Um, even us experienced professional operators, 
uh, would have a hard time to kind of pull off the shots and stuff that this individual did. Uh, and that aircraft there was not was not qualified on the transport Canada list to actually go over people. So what would have happened? So what were the size of these that were flying around? Oh, they're a little fold. This one was a Mavic Two Pro made by DJI, and uh, they're like little foldable arms. It's got little props on it, and they can fit literally in the back of your pocket, and you can fly it from pretty much anywhere. So these were uh, smaller ones that were over the over the parades and rallies. Yeah, but it, they're still around thirteen hundred grams or so. So this. So if they fall, if they fall and they hit, and they go into the crowd, what happens? Oh, well, this thing, anything can happen, Scott, to be quite honest with you. First of all, they use a LiPo battery. Um, if that thing ever pierced, it'd go off like the 4th of July and start a fire for one. Hmm. Two, the, the, the props are spinning at a very high rate of uh, RPM. Yeah. A- anything could happen. Anything. You could chop an ear off, take an eye out, could hit somebody in the head. Um, you know, in the five years I've been doing this, you do see videos and you do see stuff on the net and social media of uh, phantoms or and drones hitting people in the side of the head. This could have turned out a lot worse. And what other the other thing that kind of gets us is this was a very brazen act. The gentleman even said, you know, I'm going to go and do this and that sort of thing. And uh, the response from transport was a little lackluster as well. So what will happen? I mean, uh, obviously there's plenty of proof of, of the offense that's been committed. Uh, how will officials handle, react to these uh, three strays? Well, the three strays, well, about the other two, I don't know. The one that was okay by NavCanda, they wouldn't even look at. It was the one that was on the Instagram that was sure. kind of brazen. That, that's the one that there would, there would be kind of looking at. Um, at this point in time, and we kind of knew this, and I can't speak for the other professional operators across the country, only for myself, is that really it's kind of what we kind of knew, unless they're really caught in the act, then maybe the hands are tied of transport. That being said, with video footage, the identification, uh, would they not be able to trace these to the operator? I think they would be because he, he pretty much, uh, again... Admitted it. Pretty, yeah, he pretty much admitted it and said, okay, well, look what... It's, just, it's kind of like the catch me if you can. And, and really, Scott, at the end of the day, this kind of set a really bad precedent. Like, okay, well, all these drone, drone, drone laws are in place. Well, look what happened. This Nothing happened to this guy. So uh, That's my point. I'm thinking, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't they have made an example out of this? Because here's a perfect, a very highly publicized event, big event. Here's a perfect scenario where these things could go awry. Uh, something everybody remembers. This would be a good indicator, a good situation to point to everybody what the rules are and perhaps make an example, no? Or is well, it that because know, these rules have just come into play June 1, we're a little bit more lax on all this? I think I don't know if it's about the lax part. I, I think with Transport Canada, very black and white, they have to have so much evidence, I guess, going forward. And the evidence was really there. Again, can't speak for the operators across the country, but because I do train on these and I do instruct and all that, when we saw, when I saw this, I went, geez, look at this. And the guy even admitted it. I don't know how much more proof you need. But uh, again, once we saw the response from transport, it's, it's, it was, uh, it was a big letdown. Now, would most would most people have known, I guess, obviously the drone operator would because they probably had to get a license to do it. But uh, would anybody, the average person, know that these things aren't allowed where, this, where they were allowed? I think with the education, and we've come a long way with this, Scott, in the last three to four years because, you know, the drones really exploded, really, you know, consumer-wise. I think... Most of the, if you're if you're into it and you know you have a bit of knowledge and you look up and you're at a concert or a big celebration like the parade, oh look, there's a drone fall, uh, around. Ninety percent of the people go, oh wow, let's wave at it. There might be ten to fifteen percent that says, hey, is that guy really doing that properly? Yeah, you know. So theoretically, and then, and then what would happen? What would happen? You got the 
prime minister there, too. Yeah. And this is where we're getting a little fuel of the fire here. Yeah. A, it was brazen. Plus, the prime minister was there. What happened if he was on the stage and the thing fell and fell on his feet? That's my next uh, point in all of this. We're talking about the regulations and rules around the operator. What about this as a security threat? Because, as you mentioned, they can be used to carry various things. However, you know, whether this, whether, you know, a situation is an accident, as you mentioned, something falling from the sky, or if something's deliberately done, uh, certainly this is a security issue if there's a couple of these things flying around. Absolutely. I don't want to scaremonger a lot of folks or get a lot of folks worried. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, Transport Canada's got their hands full. Let's just put it this way. I'll just say that right off the top. Six years ago, they didn't really ex- expect this and didn't want this, but they're dealing with it, I guess, the best they can. Um, yes, without going into too much detail, it's a different world now. Uh, drones are used for, I'm, I, I believe, dark, deep in my soul, are used for good. Mm-hmm. But there's bad people out there. What can I say? I think we all know that. We live in a different day and age now. And, um, you know, these things can be what happens if there was something strapped to it or what if there was something to it. Uh, this could have turned out far worse than, than what actually happened. What are the regulations of what these can be used for? I mean, or what they can carry? I mean, often, obviously, they're carrying a camera. But is there is there regulation on what they can and can't be carrying? They can use a factory gimbal. In other words, a camera, a camera that is designed for that aircraft. Nothing else. If you put anything else on it, it has to be documented, and transport would want to see it. Uh, what we tell all our students is that when you do open it up from the box and what have you, don't modify it. Don't put anything on it. It also it also acts like a Cessna or a plane. If you throw out the weight and balance on one of these yeah, things, yeah. and not only that, it could be an insurance issue. You'd be in big trouble if you modified it and the thing doesn't fly right, and next thing you know, you're flying and this crashes into something. Well, what'd you do? Oh, I put some extra weights on it, or I modified it. Right. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. Like vehicle insurance, do you need insurance if you operate these things? Well, that's a very good question, Scott, because as of midnight June 1st, insurance is not required. And I did approach... Sorry, the, is not required? Not required. Not required to fly one, but I think we all know, and again, in this day and age... Uh, prior to June 1st, uh, when you were a recreational flyer, I guess they were saying a minimum of 100000 Well, I don't think that would even get the lawyer on the phone, depending if something happened. Yeah. Um, gosh forbid. And uh, no slide of the lawyers out there. But anyways, it's um, now there's no... Uh, I did mention something at a Transport Canada forum saying, well, where, where did this logic come from? And their response was, Transport Canada is not in the insurance business. Hmm. Um, we only got a few seconds left here. Before buying one of these, what do you? What should the average person do? What should? What's a good? Where's a good place to start for all this, Darren? Well, you know, you can buy them at the uh, the big department stores and what have you. If you're going to get into this, it's a crawl, walk, run. That's an actual aviation or a transport term. If you're going to crawl, buy something that's under 250 grams and just learn how to fly first. Because crashing one of those are only about. 50 to $80 or $50, and they have a camera and all this kind of fun. And you can learn how to fly and then go up from there. Um, frankly, know what you're buying. Know about the local bylaws because of the bylaws, too. If you think you can fly off in a park in Toronto or whatever, they have different bylaws. You can't do that. So check the bylaws. Know what you want to do with it. Are you in controlled or uncontrolled airspace? Just be aware of what you're embarking to or barking into when you buy one of these things. Darren Clark has been with us, Clarion Drone Academy, talking about drones and specifically flying them over uh, populated areas like the Toronto Raptor Victory Parade. Darren, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. Have a great day. Thanks for having me on. You too. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.